Hi, welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we'll be discussing an oldie, but a goodie, Assassin's Creed II. Released 10 years ago, Assassin's Creed II takes place in Renaissance Italy and centers on the life of Florence native Ezio Altatori. Over the course of Ezio's adventures in the 15th century, players encounter a number of well-known historical figures, including Lorenzo de' Medici, Leonardo da Vinci, and Machiavelli. And like the other games in the Assassin's Creed series, this entry weaves together the biographies of famous individuals into a Dan Brown-esque tale of secret societies and mysterious artifacts. Joining me to discuss this game is Dr. Ann Proctor, a professor of art and architectural history at Roger Williams University. Dr. Proctor's research focuses on sculpture, collaborative commissions, court spaces, and the professional status of artists in Renaissance Italy. She is currently working on a book project that examines the careers of sculptors who served the Medici court in the 16th century. Anne, thank you for joining me. I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for the invite, Bob. Sure. So Anne, most of this game occurs in Florence in the late 15th century. Could Mm -hmm. you give our audience a brief background on what is going on in Florence and in Italy at large during this time period? Well, one of the things that shows up in the game that um, is such a, a point of um, entry for game players is how complicated Florentine history was at the time. How many people were involved in the maintenance of power, in the sharing of power, and the competition between various Florentine families, which, of course, leads to political violence. It leads to, you know, um, really sexy stories of betrayal and murder. Um, <laughs> but that is not something new to the 15th century in Florence. What had shifted um, by mid-15th century is Florence had um, become one of the last representative communes in Renaissance Italy. Italy at the time was a patchwork of city-states. It was not ruled by a single ruler. There were local city-states, um, most of which were run by signori or lords um, mm-hmm. by the end of the Uh, 14th and then, of course, early 15th centuries. Florence had a representative government, but it was an oligarchy. It was a representational government among um, elite merchant families and old aristocratic families. So by the time we get to the beginning of this Assassin's Creed game, Florence has experienced um, quite a bit of political turmoil already by this time um, in the 1400s. There is one particular family that came to power in the 1430s, the Medici family, which one of the things about the game that drives me crazy (laughs) is they continue to maintain the mispronunciation of the Medici family. It's Medici, not Medici, but you know, whatever. People say what they want to (laughs) say. And the Medici family had come to power as um, through their wealth. Um, They had been bankers to the Pope and also to the King of France. And when you have access to that many financial resources, you can certainly accrue power in your local state. Mm -hmm. So Lorenzo's grandfather was the first of these people to accumulate not only the wealth, but um, to start to accumulate political power in Florence by organizing behind the scenes factions. So Cosimo de' Medici, this first Medici family member with so much power, he never really held significant political office himself within this representative government. But he had control over who was nominated for political power. Mm. So by organizing the elections and making sure that the people who agreed with him would be the people who held power, he became one of um, the 
earliest leaders to marshal representative government into something that looked more like a court than it did like an oligarchy or a republic. Mm -hmm. So by the time we get to Lorenzo, who's the focus of this game, um, Lorenzo uh, has taken many of the same tactics that his grandfather used, and he's made them even more stringent. He has, um, by 1470, filled the Council of Florence with his supporters. And at the same time, Lorenzo is working on, and this is where this game starts off, Lorenzo is working on not just consolidating power within Florence, but extending that territorial power and the wealth of the commune by waging war or simply buying other Renaissance cities, Mm. which is how he gets in trouble with the Pope. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Well, you know, the game's protagonist, Ezio, he becomes a close confidant of Lorenzo. And you've given us a really good background on the kind of political machinations of the Medici family. But I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about what the Medici family did in Florence itself? What did it mean for uh, Florentine society and for culture to have the Medicis in charge? I guess it depends on what side of the Medici faction you're on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> If you are um, a another family that would like to be at least sharing power, mm-hmm. you know, the Medici were a force for tyrannical government. If you were one of the um, people who um, was in the good graces of the Medici and you were interested in the kind of um, long-term stability they brought to Florence, they brought cultural production in the form of um, architectural and artistic patronage. They were huge sponsors of um, humanist poets, um, theologians, and philosophers. Um, So in some ways, one of the reasons we keep going back to Florence in historical fiction is there's a real outpouring of cultural production. Mm -hmm. And that's closely tied to um, the rule of the Medici during this time period. However, they were not good at sharing power. And they were able to maintain this kind of uh, cultural power by, as I said, cronyism. Mm -hmm. So what they brought to Florence was a figurehead who could negotiate with other leaders. The 15th century along the Italian peninsula, this constellation patchwork of city-states, these folks were often at outright war with Mm -hmm. one another. And so to have a a single person who could negotiate in some ways, you know, you put yourself in an advantage um, that 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 person holds a significant amount of power and can negotiate. On the other hand, that person will become a target. Um, And if you put that much local power into the hands of one family, um, you're giving up, of course, the sort of shared uh, Republican governance of this of this commune. Right. Right. And it sounds like with the Medici's uh, sponsorship of the arts and artists, it sounds like it was a bit more, it wasn't altruistic, you know, it wasn't simply for the love of the arts, but in a way it was kind of like propaganda. Oh, for sure. I mean, there, the, fortunately, one of the things about Florence being a banking town is the documentary history associated with that city is deep and rich. Mm-hmm. So we have patrons in the 1400s who write about their reasons for paying for art. And they're pretty clearly for self-gratification, for building a family legacy, for honoring God, and for honoring the city. And to try to pull any single motivation out of those four would would be a little bit false. Mm-hmm. Um, 
nobody is is paying for art or for new architecture strictly from a self-preservation or self-promotional um, standpoint. Mm -hmm. Everything is, in fact, for the city of Florence. But at the same time that you are beautifying the city of Florence, you also are, of course, building reminders to the city that they should pray for your family, they should honor their political relationships and alliances. So internal motivation for patronage, a pretty complicated little system. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of patronage, Ezio builds a really close relationship with Leonardo da Vinci, you know, kind of one of mm -hmm. these Florentine artists. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about da Vinci's life and in particular his life in Florence during this era. Sure. <laughs> It was really fun to um, think about those relationships because when it comes to the fame of an artist like Leonardo, today we tend to think of him as kind of an independent hero. And this game reinforces that a little bit mm -hmm. by having him carry around boxes of paintings. <laughs> First of all, absurd. No one was painting on canvas in the 1470s in Florence. Um, so the medium is wrong. Um, the concept of having a ton of little paintings that you sell on spec that's also not how patronage worked um, in the late Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Before a painting was produced, an artist and a patron would sign a contract dictating what materials would be used, what exactly would be the size of the painting, where it was intended to be displayed, and what the content would be. So the idea of Leonardo like putting together a box of paintings that he had kind of come up with off the top of his head and hoping that someone would buy, that's not consistent with painting <laughs> practice. But the other thing that is so like hilariously and delightfully fantastical about this version of an artist is that he's working independently and no one was working independently in the late 15th century. Mm -hmm. Michelangelo didn't work completely independently. All of these artists were workshop based. So to come back around to your question of who Leonardo was in um, at least the 1470s when they start to build this relationship. Leonardo was still working in the workshop of another artist. He was an apprentice in the workshop of Andrea del Verrocchio. And Verrocchio is a fabulous artist. He should have, you know, when we think about our Ninja Turtle artists, people like Verrocchio being left out is kind of absurd. Mm. Um, Verrocchio was a painter and a sculptor. Doesn't, doesn't quite roll off the tongue, unfortunately. I know, I know. <laughs> um, uh, oh. <laughs> is not an easy name either. Um, yeah, but it but shortens yeah. to Mikey, right? So. <laughs> it does, it does. <laughs> um, so Verrocchio is this artist who has a massive workshop with both painting production and sculpture production, and that's where Leonardo gets most of his training. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of this game, Leonardo would have been somewhat prominent within that workshop, but he was still a collaborator with Verrocchio. In 1476, they painted a painting of the baptism of Christ, um, in which we have what most people believe is the first evidence or, or our earliest um, evidence of Leonardo's practice as a painter. Mm -hmm. He paints an angel within this overall scene of the baptism. So the painting is a collaboration and Leonardo's first product as a painter is a contribution to someone else's work. Mm. And that's just in 1476. So it's a year before this game gets, or it's around the time this game gets started. Right. Um, he gets his own workshop in 1477. Um, but the first record of an independent commission that we have for him is, um, in the early 1480s. 
So he's the idea of him forming this relationship with Ezio as a very young artist is interesting because Leonardo still would have been making his way. He would not have been either working independently or um, a particularly influential kind of ally to to seek out in Florence at the time. Interesting. So in a general sense, and you've kind of already gone into this, but in a general sense, what do you make of the way the game depicts Renaissance Italy? Is there anything that stands out to you about the makeup of the city, about the architecture, or about the way the people are depicted in the game? Yeah. (laughs) Some of it is really wonderful. I love... Um, imaginative recreations of what these spaces would have looked like. I mean, I watched the Borgias and their reconstruction of old St. Peter's um, was just magical. It was so cool to see that, um, to see that brought to life before old St. Peter's was destroyed and um, then redesigned by successive architects in the 16th century. Similarly, in this game, it's really fun to see this medieval city, which is most of Florence today and in the 15th century, most of Florence had been constructed in the 12th to 14th century. Mm-hmm. So the cities today look very much the way that they would have at the time of this game. However, they don't look the way that they do in the game. <laughs> <laughs> all, all of these streets are a little bit narrow. They're a little bit more winding. Florence was founded by Rome. It was a Roman military camp. And so downtown Florence today and in the 15th century was full of streets at right angles to one another. Mm. And so these kind of wandering back alleys that um, Ezio goes running through are a delight in terms of their facades, but their orientations to one another just don't are, are inconsistent with how Florence is actually laid out. Right. Similarly, those facades are a total pastiche of um, medieval architecture and architecture up and facade decoration up through the late 16th century. Mm -hmm. There are lots of buildings that have black and white fresco patches on them in really wonderful, almost embroidery looking patterns. And that's something that isn't practiced in Florence until the 16th century. It's called scrafito. Mm. Um, and you see them all over this game. Um, and it's it's beautiful. It's really gives uh, visual interest to the city streets that you get to see. Um, but that's not how people were decorating their palaces. They would have mostly been um, either bare stone the way that we see, or there may have been um, uh, city tabernacles where people could have prayed outside in times of plague. Mm. What about the behavior of the people or perhaps even their dialect? Oh my gosh. Their <laughs> accents are ludicrous. I mean, who, who knows? Who knows what a 15th century Florentine accent would sound like in English, right? They get, right. They get to be as um, uh, liberal in their interpretation of what this sounds like as possible. But none of these people sound like Florentine speaking English. Mm. Um, their, their accents are just, they're just delightfully... Incorrect. They're far closer to Spanish accents than they are to um, Italian accents speaking English. Mm -hmm. I do love the amount of Italian that's thrown in. It makes me giggle. It's really fun to hear people called stupid. It's really, you know, like, who the hell is that in Italian is really fun to hear when people are answering doors and things like that. In terms of their behavior on the street, the streets would have been fuller than we see, and they would have been a lot dirtier Mm -hmm. than we see. Um, They also would have been noisier. One of the things that really struck me in listening to some of the videos was the absence of church bells. Mm. And these neighborhoods would have been full of 
uh, noise making of uh, a musical variety with the ringings of various church bells for mass. So they, they sounded a, a little bit quiet, um, a little bit more angry, I think, than they would have been um, <laughs> in the way that people are like demanding people buy things from them. Yeah. Um, but it, it was it's really fun to, to watch the recreation. One more thing that strikes me is the relationship of architecture to open space. Mm. Uh, by the time we get to the 1490s, we see Palazzo Pitti across the river as a, an important place for conversation. But they've recreated Palazzo Pitti the way that it looked 100 years later in the 1570s rather than the way it would have looked in the 1490s. Mm. And another thing that they've shifted about the cityscape that makes total sense for gameplay when you want to leap from rooftop to rooftop is they have closely embedded the public palace of Florence, the Palazzo Vecchio, within an architectural, a sort of a dense architectural area of the city. So you can leap rooftop to rooftop. Right. But in fact, the piazza around the Palazzo Vecchio had been opened. So it was several blocks deep on most sides oh, by wow. 1300. So not even like re close to the timeline of the game. For 200 years, the space around the public palace had been so open, you certainly couldn't leap from one rooftop to another. Oh, well, that's not fun. I mean, come on. I know. <laughs> I know. For the game, like you need to be able to, yeah. to pick your way at, across the top of the rooftops like a chimney sweep. But um, for the way Florence is actually built, that's not true at all. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so many of the decisions of the game are based off of – Making the it for a fun experience for the player and exactly. getting into the game mechanics of going rooftop to rooftop and you know I think this is something you definitely saw with the previous Assassin's Creed game. Um, AC One is set in um, kind of Crusades era uh, Jerusalem, uh, uh, modern day Palestine, uh, whatever you want to call mm. it, and uh, it makes similar sorts of. Uh, changes to the makeup of the city and the proximity of different buildings and then also the width of the streets which yeah. uh, you know obviously you can't have a very wide street if you're attempting to jump across unless you were to make your uh, character into Spider-Man Spider right. or Super Mario <laughs> or something like that yeah. uh, but uh, you know it is interesting to hear you talk about the way that the people are depicted um, you know Ubisoft the developer of this game uh, is a uh, French and French Canadian uh, game developer. So I'm wondering if there's maybe a little bit of uh, uh, French uh, bias uh, mm. regarding Italians and the way that they act uh, in this game. Uh, I don't know if there's anything to that. I don't know enough about the relationship between France uh, and Italy, but uh, there you have it. Well, it could all be about, you know, who, to whom does the Mona Lisa truly belong? Mm. And of course, the answer is France. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, you know, it is funny, though, uh, because it was created by a what you might call an international developer. Uh, there are uh, different languages that you can play the game in. And I think Italian mm -hmm. is one of them. So they have oh, different wow. voice actors depending on which uh, game language you choose. And so you could play the entire game in Italian or French, for instance. So that is... I wonder what that sounds like. Yeah. And, you know, I if I'd really been thinking about it, I would have shared some video with you of uh, the Italian playthrough at the very least, but I didn't do that. Um, that's all right. But, you but... know, that's okay. I didn't study Italian. I didn't really study <laughs> French either, even though I took a language exam in that. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's so, German works for me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so this game came out uh, 10 years ago. Uh, in fact, uh, it was this past November where it celebrated its 10th anniversary. And 
that period 10 years ago, back in 2009, it was kind of a high point for historical fiction sets uh, or related to Renaissance Italy. And in the last decade, we've had several TV shows about the Borgias, the Medici, and Da Vinci, as well as numerous Dan Brown books and film adaptations related to the history of this era. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, what is it about this history? What is it about this particular era that makes it so popular for historical fiction? So as I've been thinking about that question a little bit, I keep coming back to I keep coming back to the word factionalism Mm -hmm. um, and um, how intriguing it is that within a group of people, one person's actions can make a huge difference. Um, And we're talking about a time period in which most of the history of um, at least the Italian peninsula was determined by a handful of powerful people working in relationship with one another and constantly constantly stabbing each other in the back, sometimes quite literally. (laughs) Um, So for instance, one of the things that I think that this game misses out on is that for the Pazzi conspiracy, they were actually attacked in church in mass. Oh, wow. And originally the assassin who was hired to do it could not, he refused. He said, I'm not killing people in church. So the Pazzi turned to two priests and two priests were angry enough at the Medici to try to take their lives in the middle of mass. Wow. And the only reason that Lorenzo survived was he took refuge in the sacristy, which is a you know small, small room for the storage of um, holy objects like um, the paten and the chalice that's right off the sanctuary of a church. So that's how Lorenzo survived. And I think that kind of um, that kind of detail is One, the fact that we have that level of detail from this time period makes it a rich space for recreating and imagining ourselves within. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we see in this game is that because we have so much of that architecture still existing, we can really put ourselves in that place in a very compelling way. But to bring it back around to factionalism, you know, it's also the same time that we started to see the rise of all of these real housewives shows, Mm. right? The idea that alliances are built and broken and one person's action can shatter an alliance. That was certainly true in the renaissance city-states and i think the idea that one or two people can have a real effect on history is super compelling mm-hmm. um, when the world feels so large and interconnected that it's hard for people to feel powerful mm. so to, to inhabit the role of a hero who can make a huge difference and either save lives or in this game take lives it allows people to you know have a little power over the way that the whole world is organized yeah. now of course if we were all living in renaissance italy Nobody watching this video and nobody talking on this video would be in a position to make these historical choices and rolled as an assassin. Right. Like if you wanted to come from an anonymous background, you could be an assassin. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, um, uh, the kind of aristocratic or um, wealthy merchant families that we see in the Renaissance as powerful people that the very few of us have access to that kind of power today. So it's it's. And exciting to inhabit that role, I think. Yeah. You know, it, it, you bring up a good point. 
related to the factionalism because I think uh, and this is kind of something that modern historians like myself talk about with relation to popular fiction is that there tends to be more period dramas set uh, in the distant past, you know, pre-modern mm. than there are in the modern period, primarily because of what you're talking about, where, you know, when you get things like the Industrial Revolution or the rise of capitalism, any of these major historical forces it's often very difficult to have a believable story where one individual makes mm. a big difference. Whereas in the pre-modern world, you can have, especially in the setting uh, in Florence with an oligarchy, you can have these moments where one person makes a huge difference. And I think that that idea, like you've said, is really compelling uh, to viewers, to the audience. I mean, you see it also... Uh, in something like Game of Thrones, you know, which, you know, is obviously a fantasy story, but has a very serious, um, you know, medieval England, uh, Western yeah. Europe uh, uh, history uh, kind of embedded in the way that it depicts that struggle between the different houses. So I think it's a really good point. I, I, you've convinced me. Well, I think the other thing that I would be remiss if I just overlooked was um, people tend to think of Renaissance Florence as a homogeneously white mm. setting, and therefore it's a way to practice violence with eliminating such historical injustices as racism and mm -hmm. colonialism. Of course, Florence in the Renaissance was not entirely white. Um, it was not entirely homogenous in terms of religion um, or ethnicity, um, certainly not in terms of socioeconomic status. But there is a way that you can um, live in this space as a white protagonist relatively guilt-free, right? It's a way to, to dive into the past um, without uh, confronting all of the issues of historical colonial injustice. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, that's going to do it for today's episode. And thank you so much for joining me. I had so much fun. Thanks for having me, Bob. Awesome. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about History Respawn, please visit our website at www.historyrespawn.com. And History Respawn exists thanks to patron support. Uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider visiting our site on Patreon to see how you can help the show. Our site is www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Until next time, goodbye.